out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the singer-songwriter and author Dan Stewart, who I spoke to very recently all the way in um, Tucson, Arizona. Um, one-time member of Green on Red and uh, has just brought out his third book in a trilogy, which is, this one is titled Marlowe's Revenge. It sort of follows, well, obviously, the first two. Um, so we talk about that, the band, music, creativity. Um, so this is the interview. I've left the first bit in, which is really talking about where he's living now and a bit about that, that world. You get the gist, you know, you can skip this if you really want to, the first five minutes. But I thought it was quite interesting and it made me smile. Anyway, we were just talking about um, Las Vegas National Parks and then he got down to where he's living in Tucson. Anyway, Dan, take over for God's sake now. One thing that's uh, funny about Oaxaca, where I lived, is that in the United States, that trip you're talking about, doing a big circle, using sort of Vegas as the epicenter. You can do that all in Oaxaca in about and see the same drastic geographical changes in about eight hours. <laughs> <laughs> I know. So it's, it's like the American Southwest compressed into this area. But um, yeah, you know, I mean, one of the main reasons I came back is, is how much... Um, because I had spent uh, five years of, about in Oaxaca and then, uh, you know, three in Mexico City. And um, I really missed nature. You know, I missed, I was going sort of crazy because, you know, I've lived in mega cities. You know, I've lived in LA, I've lived in New York, I've lived in Mexico City. And the problem I spent, you know, lived pretty, yeah, I spent, you know, um, almost a year in London too. And as you know, it's very difficult to escape on a day trip when you're in the middle of a city like that. Mm -hmm. It takes to leave the city. So here, um, and when I lived in Oaxaca also is, if I go in an hour direction anywhere from Tucson, I'm in a different sort of world, you know, and I've got grasslands sort of that look like Montana to the southeast. I've got the Sonoran Desert right here. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a 10 minute bike ride, 15 minute bike ride away from Saguaro National Park uh, east, west. And, um, you know, I back up to the Santa Cruz River right where I am right now which is uh, along the banks is where the original sort of indigenous crop fields were. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, I miss it. I, and, and so it's been, uh, been very gratifying to be able to be back in um, an area of the world that's super special as far as its, uh, its fauna its landscape um and we have sky islands we call them which is where the mountains you know mount lemon which is 
you know, it would take me probably 90 minutes to drive up there. You know, that's eight and a half thousand feet high. Right. So, you know, I don't know what that is in meters. Pardon me. But, <laughs> oh, no, you're 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 a Brit. Yeah. Get, yeah. But um, so it's just a very and then also, you know, with everything that's going on. Oh, you know, as far as not just COVID, COVID is just like sort of a rehearsal for climate change. And last summer we had just a brutal, I mean, we're in the middle of a really bad drought. And last summer it was unbearably hot, like starting right now. I'm outside, it's beautiful, 90 and dry. But last year it would have been 105 degrees right now. And it lasted all into October. So old desert rats that used to always sort of poo-poo anybody complaining about stuff are worse it scared them last year so i think maybe we'll get to the point just through sheer fear when people start experiencing things directly they'll maybe start paying attention a little bit more to what's at stake mm, yes. you know instead of it just being a theory or you know, I mean, you're lucky you don't have the rampant anti-intellectualism that is, you know, has always been a part of the United States. Um, and now it's just, you know, obviously with the last administration just gave it so much uh, permission to be as stupid as possible. You know, ignorance is considered a, a beautiful thing in some circles here. Yeah. Yeah. It was, so it's um, going to be a battle, you know, it's going to be something that the kids are going to have to try to figure out. Yes. Well, or, or just rely on Elon Musk, really. Oh, well, that's the problem, isn't it? You know, I'm a guy like him. I don't know. And, and, you know, we have to I mean, do nation states matter anymore? I say they do, right? I say that they're our best bet. I don't want, I don't want the Gates Foundation uh, curing malaria. I want the United Nations to do that through the World Health Organization and stuff. This whole idea, you know, in, in my country, I think Thatcher did the same thing uh, as Reagan, but, you know, Reagan literally said that government has no answers that it's the problem i mean that's just an awful thing to say and then he gutted public education you know that public here is the you know free school and so now we have a electorate that um as george carlin our great comedian once said think about how stupid the average person is and realize half the population is dumber than that <laughs> so, <laughs> It's gonna be uh it is, it's really hard. It's um been rough. It's been I I mean, I don't know how what the difference would be between here and um I mean Boris um he's an oaf and all of that and on purpose and all of that, but I mean it, to me it, it, there's it's impossible for anybody to be less sort of that, that I, I imagine 
Boris still has some sort of curiosity about things, right? Yeah. Where, where, where we had a president that had no curiosity about anything, you know? And if you don't wake up interested in this world, and if you, and if you don't accept and know what you don't know, I mean, there's just no hope, right? So we're all kind of relieved over here that we've got this guy that seems so far to um, understand what the major issues are and to at least come to them with some sort of rational approach based on reality. Yes. <laughs> Well, I would imagine, yes, I would imagine he's had quite a clear-up act to do, to um, sort it out. Well, you know, we, they don't talk about it much, but so many people retired within federal and uh, also the state houses. Um, so many people retired under his administration because it was just unbearable. So we, we have a lot of things are gutted, you know, where there's no professionals there anymore no experts and um everything from the state department down and uh and and he so he you know how do you convince people that it's that public service is worth it again you know how do you um put meaning and value into something that's been so denigrated now really since I don't know, around 2008, I guess, you know, it's been the Tea Party movement. But it's been happening for a long time, you know, it goes back to goes back to Ray. And of course, I live in Arizona, which is, you know, the John Birch Society came out of Phoenix, you know, and yes. so the, there's a there's a there's a huge history of reactionary craziness. And um, and then Tucson used to be the real liberal place, right? We used mm -hmm. to be Udall, which you probably don't know him, but um, the Udall family were really solid Democrat environmentalists. He ran for president a couple of times. And then Phoenix was Barry Goldwater, who, you know, was one of the giants of what, of the, the previous conservative sort of movement, you know, what used to be conservatism in this country which is gone. I mean, he wouldn't recognize any, he would be horrified, you know? Uh, so it's just a, you know, it's a dangerous, I always say, you know, I grew up with people had bumper stickers on cars. You know that when you're driving, doing those drives out yeah. of Vegas. And bumper stickers have just disappeared because people are scared to, you know, and bumper stickers, the odd, the odds of a bumper sticker, if it's not funny, it used to be pretty much, usually I would say half of all bumper stickers back in the day were political in some way, you know, maybe in a funny way, maybe whatever, but it was making some sort of political statement. Now people, they don't, nobody puts anything on their car because they're afraid they're going to get shot, you know. Um, I mean, truthfully. So it's a, the conversation just isn't happening and we're not ready for it. Um, it's a country of children. I mean, we are, we're a country of, uh, I was hoping we would make it to adolescence. <laughs> <laughs> 
Did you did you have optimism with Barack Obama? Was that did that feel like a, you woke up and thought, "Blimey, this is this is quite different now." You know, it was a it was a magical moment, and it was transcendent. But the problem happened is that the obstructionism against him because those first midterms, you know, that's when the Tea Party really got into Congress. And he also was prevented from, he had all of the, you know, you have this ingrained racism where black males aren't allowed to be angry ever, right? They're not allowed to be, I mean, they vilified him for wearing a tan suit, you know? So he never really had a chance outside of just sort of being a very important symbol for the rest of the world, right? Mm. So for people like me, it was a disappointment because things, we wanted things to change faster. And I mean, we pay 20% of our GDP for healthcare. And we don't even have universal coverage. You know, you guys probably are paying 8% or something. And every, and you have the National Health Service. Yeah, that's right. Right? And, and I live, I don't know what the homeless situation is like in the, in the UK, but um, here, it, I can't even describe it, how, how many people are just um, lost that will have no chance. Um, and just like COVID, they, because, because the trucks weren't, the morgue trucks weren't coming around with a loudspeaker saying, bring out your debt. I mean, that's what, that's what the right wanted to see for them to accept that there was a real issue here, right? Because mm -hmm. everything else is just fake. It's just, there is no objective reality. And it's all just this, par it's, it's this paranoid um, view of the world right and um, so there's no authoritative sources you know google's a big problem because back in the day before they went public their page ranking was based on authoritative sources so universities and things got very high but now it's all based on you know consumerism yeah. and the, i mean a good example i tell people is is Google best dog food. And there's got to be data out there that really shows, you know, what, what are the best companies for what is the, but it's in, I spent the, an hour the other day and I couldn't make heads or tails of what sort of dog food was better than another dog food. <laughs> it's impossible. So if you can't do it with dog food, how the fuck are we supposed to do this with vaccination? Yeah. You know, I mean, it's just, um, it's hard, it, it's hard. And at the same time, maybe what'll save us is one-to-one -one human contact again, somehow. Yes, absolutely. You know, I mean, the music business is no longer a business. It's a music community now, good, bad, or indifferent. Um, so we'll see what happens with that. Uh, I come out of the last era where there was still a music business. 
there was still publishing money. There was still, you know, the objective was to be signed to a major and, sure. you know, go wag your weenie for the masses, you know. <laughs> but, <laughs> but now it's a very sort of, you know, uh, I have contemporaries, I won't name any names, that, that have like 50 records, you know. It's like 50 solo records. It's like, how can you make 50 records? I mean, do you really have that much to say? But that happens because, you know, you need to record to feed your Uber fans, which are, so it's not about increasing your audience. It's about staying with who's with you and feeding that. And I don't think that's healthy. Mm. No, I've, I've made four solo records in 30 years, and you could argue that's three too many. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, well, so it's sort of in, interestingly, because, I mean, you know, the band was based in Tucson. I mean, what was your, you know, the formative years when you were sort of growing up? Because I was born 64, I'm now in my more than late 50s. I mean, it was kind of the glam period, and then luckily David Bowie was my first single and my first love. What was what was kind of your kind of formative kind of early sort, teen? sort of similar? Um, I, I my family came. My dad was an immigrant from Australia, and he we wound up here in '67. He was a he was a high jumper, and he got to the United States on a track scholarship, and he came from very modest means and. Uh, in Lismore, which is on the border of Queensland and uh, New South Wales. And he wound up, we wound up here because they had just started a med school and he, uh, he had become a professor of neurophysiology because a lot of the jocks got into physiology, you know, so. So we're out here in 67 and of course, I'm six years old and the counterculture is in full swing and and Tucson was just full of, uh, you know, very, very back then, very much a hippie, you know, environment. I mean, this is Edward Abbey. I don't know if you know that writer. He was a huge environmental, one of the early guys, and uh, Charles Bowden later. And we were a center of sort of uh, this promise of that was going to happen. And we had a, um, you know, driving around with my mom, AM radio, 1968 was, uh, was tremendous. You know, the top 40 in 1968 was just, I mean, everything from the Supremes to Bob Dylan, right? It was just great. And then of course, later, right around early seventies, when I was just becoming, you know, puberty's hitting and FM radio, man, class, what we call classic rock now, you know, they would play the side of Procol Harum or something, you know, right. Salty Dog, they would play, obviously, Lou Reed, Bowie, you know, um, but also redneck sort of hippie music like Leonard Skinner, all of that. So I was really lucky I got that, you know, and, and, and then when that got sort of boring, as you say, you know, glam's. Mm -hmm. New York Dolls and stuff. And then punk hits. So punk was perfect. Punk hit when I was about 15 or 16. And right. I'd, I'd sort of given up on rock and roll at that point a little bit. I think I was listening to a lot of jazz at that point. And um, probably bad jazz fusion, actually. <laughs> Weather Report. Yeah. Were you listening John to Weather Report? And stuff. Yeah, he's not bad, but you know what I'm talking about. 
and and then it was just you know Tucson had this punk community that was like you know all across the country towns especially university towns like Tucson there would be a scene so in Tucson it was about 50 people maybe 100 max with the looky loose and I was in a band called Surfers with an E S E R F E R S no the <laughs> so, and uh, we opened for all the West Coast punk bands. Everybody from Black Flag to, you know, to the Weirdos to Fear. And, um, and that's what sort of, you know, I remember David Wiley from a band called Human Hands, which was kind of like the L.A. Talking Heads. And he said, you know, you got to go to L.A. You know, you got to get out of Tucson and go to yeah. L.A. And uh, that's what I did. I got into legal trouble um, it, with a botch smashing grab at a music store, which is what I thought Pete Townsend would do if he needed a. <laughs> 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 and um, and so I went out there, and uh, they transferred my probation out to L.A. And um, within a year, you know, a year or two, signed to Slash Records. You know, Slash Warner. Well, it was interesting you mentioned that because I, I did an interview with the guy from the punk band called Eater, which no one's probably heard of in America, but they were a very young band and they, they were like 15, 14, 15 and they, they had no money. They were in London and they were looking at this, you know, record uh, place selling musical instruments and realised when the guy was kind of leaving or locking up about four o'clock, you know, there was, a, there was a window where they could just run in, grab something and run like hell. And they 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 got away with it in that in that case. So um, yes, for them, experiences <laughs> for no, it's a horrifying thing to say. I mean, I I had done one previously that I got away with, and I was I believe me at this point I'm not, you know I'm not. I mean, come on, thievery is thievery. I hate I hate thieves, and uh, but it's a part of my past, and I think that the, the I think that what's interesting about my um, story with that is it's a great example of white privilege because if I would have been black or brown, I would never would have been allowed to leave the state, right? And I probably would have gotten some sort of time and would be um, what they say part of the system, in the system at age 19. Um, instead, <laughs> I was allowed to go out to L.A. and, you know, uh, play silly rock music all across the country. I mean, I used to mail in my probation reports from the road. They would allow me to do that. You know, I mean, I went out there and I got a job. I made sure I got a job delivering office furniture and stuff. I made, you know, I, I, I knew that what the judge wanted to see certain things. But the but the reason they allowed me to do that is because I was a white upper middle class kid, you know. If I if I wasn't, that story would have been I mean, dramatically different. Very different, very different. So wait, so how did your parents cope when they found out that you just did a smash and jab and grab job? They didn't know about it until much later. I kept that all quiet. Basically, I left the house at eighteen. Um, I left actually on Father's Day. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I'm a terrible kid, self-righteous in the extreme. You know, I should have been booted out years before. And um, 
but when punk was really happening and we were, you know, we had a fan base and stuff here. And I remember uh, telling somebody, either my mom or my dad or somebody, uh, you know, I mean, this sounds just so pretentious. I said, you know, this family's never had an artist. I'm going to be an artist. <laughs> like, Dude, you can't even sing. We've heard you on that guitar. You can't even play. What the <laughs> hell are you talking about? You know? And, um, yeah. So, uh, but see, that's what was so beautiful about the punk days is they gave you permission. You know, the whole thing was about, I mean, people, you know, my son, my son's about 23. And so when he was interested in all of this, you know, he, he got into what he thought punk rock was about age 12, I guess, 13. And he thought it was guitar music, you know, mostly played by dudes. Mm. And I had to tell him, I said, no, that that's that awful hardcore shit that came later. It kind of ruined everything. You know, like when Henry Rawlings joined Black Flag, it was kind of over, right? There's yeah. horrible macho posturing and bad poetry and all of it. But when I was into it, there was a lot of women in the scene and there was a lot of odd instruments, in accordions, you know, trumpets, uh, you know, whatever you wanted to do, if it was creative and you were and, and you were and you were committed to it. Right. Because you they call it being authentic now, which is a terrible word. Let's get rid of that word. But. You know, if you were into it and it was real, didn't matter what you were doing, you could do anything. And it was punk in my in my view, how I understand that word, you know. But then it all changed uh, early 80s and suddenly, you know, it just became this like very, very hyper macho guitar music shit. Yes. Well, it's, it's interesting because I mentioned that band Eater and the, and the lead singer who I, I can't remember. Let me be. I know the band's name. I know that band. I mean, I don't know their music, but I know that they were. Go ahead. But it, but it was interesting because he said that after a couple of years, when he saw his audience and they all started to look like Sid, Sid Vicious and they had that look, he just thought, mm -hmm. I don't even want to go on stage and perform to them. You know, it's kind of, it's suddenly like, when did we have to sort of dress like Sid Vicious? I think that was his kind of moment where he just thought, my heart's not really into this anymore. Become a cartoon you know, to become a caricature. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, 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 um, the funny thing is, is by the time I was in LA, they were already sort of what they were calling a post-punk thing. Mm. You know, that's, that was the word that they used to use. And, and, um, you know, the original scene in mask that was like the germs and stuff and early X and all of that, that was run out of the mask club. It was run by a British guy, uh, Brendan Mullen, was very important in the LA scene. And um, so they had, uh, we, we were younger, and then it was very easy for the critics to listen to some of that stuff and call it neo-psychedelic or, you know, this return of the 60s. But the reason that was happening is because as you go about your, for lack of a better word, craft, you're gonna start reflecting what you were influenced by 
subconsciously or consciously, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the other day I put on a um, spirit, you know, Randy California. Twelve Dreams. All of that, right. And, and I'm listening to it. And there were these little moments, musical interludes happening on everything from fresh garbage to all this other stuff. And I said, yeah, you know, that was stuck in my head. I, re I would go back in my own recording career and say, you know, on this song, I think I was trying to reference that and I didn't even know I was doing it, right? So that's just a natural thing. And it's not just music, obviously. Filmmaking, photographers, art painters i mean you're a product of what was it's garbage in garbage out or beauty in beauty out you're 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 a you're a product of all of that um and so maybe it was more sort of um calculated with other bands uh but i can say that progression for green on red from sort of quirky you know, kind of almost psychedelic stuff of those first two EPs. And then into the first Slash record where we're trying to write songs. And then it gets into Gas Food Lodging, which is sort of an embrace of blues and country. You know, we didn't, first of all, we never had band. We've never, I, when, when I had friends in other bands and they would say, oh, I got to go to the band meeting. It's like, what do you do at a band meeting? <laughs> what do you talk about? I mean, when we would got together, it was always to write new stuff, right? To, okay, I got this idea, I got this idea. If there was a tour and we hadn't played for a while, we would go over songs that we were going to play, mm -hmm. right? But we never talked about strategy or, you know, let's go call this record. We, not, we never did that. And that was maybe the punk part of it, you know, because I, I tell people that, that, kids that want to get into the business or this is back in the day i mean now there is no but you either get signed from the street right and you get signed because record companies are scared they're going to miss out on something happening mm -hmm. or you get signed the a and r departments in the old days were always on the seventh floor so you go up the elevator and you know somebody and it's kind of like an inside deal right so we always, whatever always happened to us was from the street. It was always, and we, and it was a lot of it was based on criticism because for some reason we got away with murder critically, right? Which really shouldn't have happened because there was a lot of stuff that wasn't, that wasn't particularly compelling. That still nobody said, this is shit, right? <laughs> so the record company they would say, well, if we sign them and we just do this or that or get them with the right producer, something will happen. Well, nothing ever happened, you know, I mean, and, and but we were, allowed, I mean, I guess my point is, is we, Green on Red made twice as many records as they probably should have. And there was different parts of it. There was the initial band, then there was the ba initial band with Chuck when Chuck joined um, around 1984, Chuck Prophet. And then I fired my best friends and um, went on with Chuck and made a few more records. So there was like three eras of it. And when we're, we're right now, we're right in the middle of doing reissues. And so we'll do, be doing three box sets. That'll, and that's how we're going to break it up, right? And um, 
whether that's overkill. Yeah, it's probably overkill. So I'm a total hypocrite because I'm serving those Uber fans, right? We're yes. people that actually give a shit. Because there's not going to be any new I mean, although I got to say, whenever the kids, uh, you know, the 80s are kind of popular right now. And so I do occasionally get some kid in their 20s wanting to know something, which is always very gratifying. Or if you find out that somebody, a young band covered you, right? Boy, that's a great feeling. I mean, when you get covered by your contemporaries, it doesn't mean anything. But if it skips a generation or two generations now, you know, I mean, yes. we're going on that almost, right? <laughs> and they do one of your songs or they talk about it. That's a, that's a very nice thing. That's a very nice thing. Amazing. But, but, the, but the interesting thing is, because during that period, I mean, you mentioned the, you know, you had punk, and then you had that post-punk world, and there were bands like, there was the Nightingales, and there was, you know, Public Image Limited, The Fall with Marky Smith, and then Magazine and Gang of Four. And then that sort of period of the early 80s, you know, as you said, there was this kind of idea of it being put into to a category called New Psychedelia, which there was bands in the UK, which were like, I don't know, um, I don't know, Medium Medium and... Um, mood six had that kind of a slightly modish quality but you didn't really have a modish quality you had more of a a looser country quality didn't you or country or folk quality as well because I remember Andy Kershaw really championed the band didn't he from the UK yes dear Andy um, I hope he's well I understand he's had some challenges as the kids say um well, like I say, it was sort of just this um, path that we were on that, um, you know, later we called, I, me and Chuck kind of had a, a epiphany that music is geography, right? So the LA records, early ones, you know, you got those two ones, you got the Gravity Talks. Well, you have the EPs too, but the real records, the Slash record and then the, the Enigma record, Gas Food Lodging. Yeah, you know, there's a bird sensibility. There's a, you know, there's a, a new writers of the Purple Sage sort of. I mean, Lonesome L.A. Cowboy is still like my anthem. You know, I mean, I love that song so much. So that that country rock sort of thing is there. Um, but we didn't sit down and say, let's do this. We just got, to, I guess what I'm saying is as a songwriter, if I can call myself that, you you come to the point where you realize that these tried and true forms of uh, cowboy chords and one five four changes there's a reason why that is the vocabulary for american music where you know i mean blues and country are the two sides of the same coin mm. and you either embrace it or you don't right and we very much embraced it and um Part of it, too, is we had a, a very sort of influential roadie that later went on to work for Massey Star and stuff, and his name was Tom Cashin. And he would put together, the, he was older than us, and so he would put together these mixtapes when we were touring. And that would really school us on early blues, early country, dump truck over there or something. But... Um, it was a natural progression, right? And uh, uh, 
I know that the British press, there was a lot of Brits that didn't like, I mean, here were these Americans that showed up with beards and stuff. I mean, we really didn't have that, but we were playing guitar music and everybody else was sort of synthesizer crazy. Yes, but then, but then that period, I remember there was, we had the early 80s of bands like then U2, Big Country, Simple Minds, and then 83, the Smiths hit. And then suddenly we had something that I think was really, this is indie pop, you know, there's a sort of vibe, you know, there's a lot of different types, but there was people like the Go-Betweens, the Triffids, the Smiths, the June Brides, you know, all these kind of quirky guitar-based bands. Some of them could barely play an instrument, but they, there was a spirit and there was all these independent labels. So I think Green on Red became slightly part of that, that kind of world of, you know, John Peel. Unfortunately, those fans would not like us. You know, the Smiths fans, the crossover <laughs> in the Smiths and Green on Red is probably zero. Um, and the reasons for that, I don't know. You know, I, I still today, I mean, come on. I'm, I mean, you're sitting there. Uh, I hope you have some oxygen to have. I mean, I'm sitting here, uh, you know, how many miles away and I'm taking up all the oxygen. I was a loud mouth. I said a lot of sort of incendiary things. And, uh, you know, I mean, I was trying to turn people off, not on. Um so, you know, our, 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 our diplomatic sort of skill set wasn't very, you know, the emotional intelligence just wasn't there. Um, musically, I think we came close when we did No Free Lunch, which oddly enough was recorded at Woolhall, which in Bath, which is, um, was Tears for Fears studio. And I think we were the first band that actually had a live drums in there. And um, that record, which was like a freebie that we gave to Phonogram that we were signed to, we were signed Phonogram London worldwide. So Polygram was releasing the records in the United States. Very, very reluctantly, by the way. It's like, what are you doing signing an American band, right? And that record, I think, had some sort of a bit of British pop sensibility. And, um, you know, there's a couple songs on there that could be Kinks tracks, I guess. Um, mm. And um, if I do say so myself. And uh, uh, but the record company, because that that was a freebie we gave them and wasn't the money they were the record they were spending money on. They didn't want to promote it, but that record had singles on. So if they would have thrown some money at that, there's a song on there called uh, Time Ain't Nothing that probably could have been a hit and was sort of played on the radio quite a bit. I mean, you have to, it's a weird thing because in the United States, all of our records were college radio top 10. Mm -hmm. That chart didn't mean anything. That chart didn't really translate. I mean, the first band in the United States, it's kind of a Smith story. The first band that that broke through in my sort of generation was REM, right? And it took them a couple of records and it took a lot of commitment from, I guess they were on Warner Electra or somebody. It took a lot of money, you know, it took um, whoever signed them, maybe it was Joe Smith, I don't know who signed them. It, you know, you gotta, you gotta put a lot of fertilizer in there with the seed. And um, sometimes it doesn't happen right away. And sometimes it happens incrementally. Well, 
we were never that that wasn't going to happen to us you know one look at us one uh, uh you know we drank a lot and we later you know did a lot of hard drugs and you know it's like no these this is first of all dan's gonna die next week you know (laughs) you know jeffrey lee pierce i just found out this recently who i adore i've always you know i mean i love the gun club i love the cramps i love the fall you know i love that stuff i a birthday party and you know i loved all that and uh, uh i found out from a mutual friend that when Jeffrey Lee was uh, in the audience uh, watching us uh, in London, uh, probably around, I don't know, 86, 87 or something, he said to our mutual friend, he said, uh, he said, that guy up there, and he pointed and he says, he says, he'll be dead before the end of the year. Before <laughs> <laughs> Jeffrey, Lee, Jeffrey Lee is gone. So life ain't fair. But, no. uh, but I don't, you know, I don't know. And and also the other thing that happened that didn't help us is that um, when we were signed in London, we concentrate on touring Europe more than the United States. And that was a huge mistake. Uh, and the reason that is because we were encouraged by our record company to do it that way, right? Where we should have made, we should have kept our, fan base in the United States. And then of course, when I fired two of the members, you know, and they had to find about find out about it in the music press, <laughs> you know, that was not good either. Now in, 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 in Britain and in the rest of the Europe, they didn't care because there was this thing like, you know, Mark Smith can have anybody he wants in the band and it's mm. still the fault kind of thing or Nick Cave can put whoever he wants in the band seats right well that doesn't fly so much in the United States it's like is this the band or is this not the band and you know we loved having Chris Kakavis in the band and Jack and where are they now what happened you know I thought you guys were friends well you know they they were jettisoned because you know Dan is a traitorous bastard right <laughs> I mean, we're all really good with each other now which is beautiful and if we ever play i mean we did a reunion back in 2006 you can only really do it once right 2007 we might play again when the reissues come out but um it's very clear who, what green on red is it's got to be the four of us it's got to be chuck prophet myself chris kakavis and jack watterson if mm. they're not Nobody's going to call it green on red. We're just not going to do it. You know? Right. That's that, that's kind of strange, isn't it? Because Marky Smith has that quite fa- famous quote that if it's him and even your granny on bongos, that's still the fool, isn't it? You know, that was his famous yeah. line. Well, and he was, you know, Mark, he was uh, a, a true a kind of class and, you know, whatever, however you pronounce that. My written vocabulary is much better than my spoken. And, you get that your audience, if they're mostly there, can just pretend that that's the way we say things. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, and it, with me, it was a very cynical, you know, my, I, I, I had a, a lot of um, problems with my, uh, 
it wasn't until about age 50 when my brain broke at age 50 that I really addressed some of the things that that was hurting me and you know uh, I'm hoping I'm hoping that today I'm a much more sort of uh, stable person than I was then you know I was I was just not stable I was a very very sort of uh, uh, unpredictable to myself and others and uh, just didn't didn't know how to go through life as a as a sane adult right so and rock and roll does not help that right no. if you're out on the road and you're getting fucked up every night. I mean, it's a cliche, isn't it? You're out there, you're getting fucked up. You're, uh, you got people that are clapping for uh, behavior that should not be applauded. (laughs) (laughs) And then that carries over into your day-to-day life. Well, that's not a healthy, that's not a healthy. (laughs) No, that's not. So just, I mean, because what I've realized doing these, these shows, that most bands have a five-year lifestyle span, which is, you know, they form, they have 12 months, they fiddle around, especially in the UK. You know, John Peel plays them, they get a John Peel session, they get the first album, do the tour, the second album, a bit tricky. By then, the band are kind of... And the second or third albums, they, they realize they hate each other and there's no money. And also, the other thing that's with the UK, which... Is, is any, if anybody ever tours America, that always breaks them. They always go, we came back and broke up. You know, you just know those words are going to come out, you know, that it just destroyed us. So it is interesting, the American tour, you know, they, that most people just can't cope with it. Yeah, it's interesting. The five-year thing, I think, is valid. Um, um, Chuck Prophet said, used to say, you know, bands have lives and half-lives, just like plutonium. <laughs> that's right you know i mean um and also it, everything is sort of a paul thomas anderson movie where you your original family wasn't uh good enough and so we form these other families as young adults right and that and that's true bands are families with everything that 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 goes with that um and you know and so for me with green on red how you know i i'm very close to my actual birth brother right i'm i'm my my blood brother uh he's older than me he's a cowboy uh, stuntman guy out in la and um kind of like henry fonda and i'm I'm very very you know i mean who we think henry fonda was henry fonda in his personal life wasn't so great but the film (laughs) henry fonda (laughs) but my relationship with Jack, Chris, and Chuck, you know, they're my brothers too. And we went to war together. And we didn't all come back. You know, Alex, the drummer, didn't come back, right? So we all take that. We don't talk about it publicly much. I mean, I always laugh when buddy, as somebody even says, do you still talk to those guys? Are you still friends? Well, what do you think? Of course, we still talk to each other. Now, we don't do it all the time. It's like family. It's not like a daily, but it goes in spurts, right? Mm. Sometimes there's nobody else in the world that will understand something that just happened to you, but a specific person from your old band. You know, with me, that's usually Chuck that I'll talk to because me and Chuck then went on and we had this other sort of thing that happened to us. 
but Jack as well. I mean, I don't know if you know, Jack is uh, very, very uh, intertwined with the LA, with Adrian Young and the whole sort of wax poetic um, uh, Southern California post hip hop world. So he's this bald headed white guy in this scene where he's the, you know, one of the few Anglos, mm. right? He, I mean, Jack and diff with different people did maybe three or four NPR tiny desk concerts the last three or four years. I mean, he, he lives a very interesting life and also owns a music store, et cetera. And then Chuck lives in, I mean, Chris lives in Germany and, you know, it's basically the, the fifth member of the dream syndicate now too and you know and and has his life there and i'm this sort of chronic expat that just drifts around and tries to write books so it's a very very sort of beautiful thing that we've got these four individuals that are living and thriving in different ways and that that the cliche sort of story that happens to Mark Smith or to Jeffrey Lee Pierce yes. um, ha has not happened, has not happened, which is um, we're all very aware of and grateful for because it should have happened. You know, it should have happened based on lifestyle, but it didn't. And so it's a very luck of the draw thing, right? And, um, and then to, to, to have survived it all, but also to have this relationship with these people where you are, you are brothers. And it is a fraternal thing. It is heavy. It is very, very deep and meaningful and completely opposite to really what we were doing publicly, right? Which is, mm. I mean, our take was always, it's a bit of a laugh, you know, we're always taking and making fun of the punters you know we were all sort of happy-go-lucky you know this is all it, and it's all going to end one day was our attitude and one day it did one mm. day it did <laughs> <laughs> but did you I mean do at that stage because I, I didn't sort of appreciate that until doing these interviews that you know there's kind of the fashion of music isn't there there's sort of the 80s in a really simplistic way there was the kind of as I said this kind of indie pelt world up to the Smiths, 87 was a particular period. Then they broke up. I know I go on about them, but I did love them. Oh, but then you had, ex you know, you had the ecstasy scene came along and that kind of created a new vibe. And also the next wave of 16 to 18 year olds, as you remember, kind of wanted their soundtrack. They didn't want a band from another period. And then we had, you know, the grunge scene that came from Seattle. And then after that, we got into Britpop. So you, you were sort of, you'd really lasted quite a long time through these kind of musical fashions, hadn't you? Yeah, I don't know how it, you know, it is true. I mean, we get, cause we, outside of the LA period, right? The LA around 82, 83, outside of that, what they now call the Paisley Underground, which we call the Paisley Underwear. <laughs> <laughs> that, that really, I, you know, it's funny. I was in Mexico City around 2015 to 18, something like that. And I used to say to Danny Amos, who's a guitar player that started Los, uh, Los Straight Jackets, you know, with the Mexican mask and the instrumental music. And he used to be in the Rabies, if you remember that instrumental band out of New York. 
dirty yes. hair, late seventies. And me and him were like adopted by these kids that were playing this sort of guitar oriented music and sort of uh, garage rock type thing. And I said to him, I said, you know, this is the third scene I've been in. I've only been in three scenes. I was in the Tucson punk rock scene, just like Danny Amos was in the Minneapolis punk rock scene before he moved to New York. And then I moved to LA and I was in what was called sort of then the neo-psychedelic scene that became the Paisley Underground. And then I was in this scene in Mexico City. I was never in that sort of roots thing, Americana. I mean, mm. that I, I hear the word, I, I get nauseous. I mean, to me, it's a fascist word, you know? It's like, what, what are you talking about? And if you go into the America, what was called the Americana scene, I mean, there's no black people. It's like seeing, trying to spot black folk at a rockabilly, rockabilly convention. It's not going to happen, you know? And so how can you, I mean, there's a few exceptions, okay? Some exceptions. I don't want to be, but I really, I really did not um, embrace that. And that was also a bad thing for me politically and and artistically because boy everybody just loved it you know that's what sort of launched Steve Earle and Lucinda Williams and all this stuff and Wilco right Wilco is the poster boy for America yes Jeff Wheely Wheely to me it's just yuck it, 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 it it's a it's a thing that you know American music the reason it is what it is that you had the Scotch Irish sort of thing that that you know, came into the Appalachian Mountains. And then you had, of course, the backbeat of Africa. But really, in rural areas, in, from all that eastern seaboard into the deep south or whatever, if you heard music back that back in the day, let's say 1920, let's say, and you heard music coming out of some rundown shack, I don't think you could really tell whether there was black folk in there playing or white. Okay. It was mm -hmm. the labeling and the branding came later. Okay. Race music came later because R and B is because they, they, until the, until Chuck Berry and until they understood that, that this black music could be sold to a white audience, to white teenagers, you know, it was very, very stratified into these different categories. And, so when they come up with Americana, but really what it is is just sort of folk music, electrified folk music, more than anything, right? It's like, why are you why are you putting that Americana back in the day was a sort of term about kitschy furniture and stuff, like a wagon wheel um, chandelier. Yeah, that's America, right? <laughs> <laughs> this word that I don't think I mean I care about words you know I don't throw them around and you know and I and it's funny because I know some of the guys that really started that scene I know the founder of no depression magazine I know the guy I know the DJ in in Austin that was one of the first triple-a stations adult art alternative which is Americana. It's gone away as a platform, you know, mm. programming thing. And I knew the guy out 
in in um, Gilroy, California. He was a pot dealer. I'm not going to mention his name, a great guy. And he's the one that really launched the Americana radio chart. Okay. This would have been early. And they know what I'm talking about. I can talk to them about what has happened. Right. And, the, and they don't say, they don't, they don't say to me, oh, you're full of shit, or that's not true, or you're just bitter. We're all sort of left here with what happened, and it hasn't been good. It hasn't been good for rock and roll. And what was wrong with that word? What was wrong with rock and roll? What was wrong with folk? What was wrong with country? What was wrong with blues? Why, were, what was, why did these, these very useful nouns, sometimes adjectives, why, why, why did they sort of become jettisoned for this other way of how we're going to talk about this stuff? To me, it, it killed a lot of stuff. Okay, I might be, you know, exaggerating here. But did you? But did you think that term was used because because I grew up with country music being people like Boxcar Willie, Charlie Bride, Ta Pride, Tammy Wynette, Jim Reeves, which was kind of like, mm. yeah, that kind of country. And then these guys came along, like Uncle Tupelo and Wilco, and then you had Lucinda Williams, and then you know, Alison Krauss. And it was like, oh, let's let's call let's not say it's country because that will be like oh, a bit kitschy. We'll call it Americana. Well, country rock worked pretty well as a word, right? When you when you had suddenly the flying burrito brothers and the birds kind of reinterpreting what was going on or uh, who was the famous bluegrass guy that played with his sons and did rock and roll. Um one of the uh this is terrible uh, this is what happens when you're 60 but um i i yeah it's a mixed bag you know i don't want to i'm not a fan of uh, the production of somebody like t-bone burnett you know to me he does sort of sepia tone to me it's like a fake matthew brady photo from the civil war that's mm -hmm. been state you know I mean, I'm just not a, I'm a huge Allison Crow. All those names you mentioned, I'm fans of, you know, I'm a fan of, I mean, I think Seaworld's a great songwriter. I think Lucinda Williams is a great songwriter. Uh, I, I just, I, I just think that the term made it easy for certain people to feel really included, but at the same time, it excluded a lot of people. So when you listen to Elvis Costello, he did a country album, didn't he, in the uh, mid-80s. Did you listen to, did you hear that? You know, Elvis is somebody that, you know, uh, he's one of these guys uh, that wants to be an American, you know. I'm, I'm not a, I mean, he's written some fabulous songs. You can't, some of that early, the, the, the Attractions records, those are, that's a great band with Pete Thomas on drums. I mean, are you kidding, Steve? naive or whatever on keyboard i mean bruce thomas i mean yeah. i know their name right so it's like you just saw my memory is just a shot but <laughs> but you know his sort of yeah he would be sort of up on my uh dartboard as somebody that has in my opinion been unhelpful okay and it's hard for me to articulate exactly what my objections are you know, there's this thing that happens. You go out to LA, you think you understand it, 
you spend all your time on the wrong side of Western, right? Western Boulevard or Avenue, whatever it is, it's Boulevard. And you don't understand that the entertainment business is like number six or seven in the economy. That light manufacturing is number one, that this is a real place. And that the only reason you really have, and it's the capital of Latin America and the Pacific Rim. And the only reason that you have these sort of like images that be, that you're actualizing these fantasies mm -hmm. is because New York was defining for so many years what LA was. And the reason that happened is because all the publishing world and advertising was really run out of New York and they didn't want competition over there. They didn't want it to be a serious, if you wrote a great, you know, you have to understand Bukowski didn't get published in the United States. That was, it started with the French and the Germans and stuff, you know. Well, they, they love Charles so, Bukowski, don't they? So the thing, I guess what I'm saying is, is it's very easy and this happens to actors a lot of times. You know, they go out there and they, they kind of become Americans, you know, and, that, and, and I, you know, I, and I'm saying you become an American and, and not a, in a superficial bad way, right? I mean, Anthony Hopkins, I think, had this realization. He was out there, he was miserable, he was drinking too much. So he went back home, you know, and then he became a serious actor again, you know. It, 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 thing that happens to people. But what and about... I, because because one of my one of my heroes is Lemmy from Motorhead. Now he he relocated to LA and he seemed to sort of it suited his lifestyle of being able to just to hang out at the bar, play his kind of machine. He didn't spend half and half. He didn't. He spent all his time out in in LA. I think so. Really? That's so he survived it. But you know what? That's funny about that because. He might have been doing that, but I don't think he was he was advertising it. <laughs> <laughs> I think you know, he just he's you one know, of my he... heroes. You know, I I mean I I met Lemmy the faint, same night that I met the head of uh, Hell's Angels London, and it was at Dingwalls, and uh, and Lemmy told me that I belonged in a cage, and his his buddy said. Um, can I, can I, it said something and they were going to buy me a pint or something. And um, I said to the biker, I didn't know who he was. I said, oh yeah, a real biker, sure you are. I said, you know, some real Hells Angel guy's going to come in here and rip the colors off your back. <laughs> <laughs> Lemmy looked a little horrified. He thought the guy was going to kill me. And the guy said, oh, quite right. You didn't know who I am. That's right. We don't know, you know, and he didn't, didn't give a shit at all. That could have been my last evening on earth. But um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a funny thing, right? It's a, it's a, it's this, uh, I, I, I love that we're all different. And although I'm a huge believer in, um, I mean, I'm a globalist, okay, straight up. I mean, I, I'm not, I don't believe in the way neoliberal economics have, have, have been so unfair to, developing nations. I don't believe in extracting wealth from countries and all of that, but, but in general terms, I believe in a global community, right? But mm -hmm. at the same time, I really believe that it's great that we're all different. 
and that that maybe I hope this is true that that in in, in London that young young uh, people don't have to go and change their accent to get ahead in life. You know, I'm hoping that a that a working class accent doesn't hurt you anymore. And 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 just like here, I hope that that your sexuality or the color of your skin or uh, doesn't hurt what you want to do in life, right? That we mm. all get a fair. So um, I guess what I'm saying is my objections about some of this, you know, I believe in the United States also as a symbol. It's important. There's a reason why immigrants still come here. And one of the main reasons why they still come is nobody cares whether you have papers. If you want to buy, what is the first thing an immigrant does in the United States and probably in the UK too, is they buy property, you know, and nobody's going to take it from them as long as they can pay the mortgage, mm. you know. And, and, and you don't have to show proof of citizenship in this country to own a house, you know? So that's the thing. It's like, we still, it still matters. That's why New York City still matters. I mean, New York City is a caricature of itself. It's exactly what it used to uh, accuse LA of being all these years. It's, it's empty and it's, it's, it's vapid and it's, uh, you know, it's horrible. It's like Orlando now, right? It's a cartoon of it. But still, there's Queens. You go up there to Queens, and there's a hundred languages spoken in a square mile. You know, mm. that's American to me. You know, whoever comes here first. I mean, whoever just got here is the most American to me. You know, my dad was an immigrant. I married an immigrant. My son is the child of an immigrant. You know, I still believe in the American dream. Um, but at the same time, people, I object to people having to leave where they don't want to leave in order to have a chance, right? And, and, and if you look at what's happened at, you know, the border, it's a lot of Central Americans. Well, if you look at the history of the United States foreign policy in places like Honduras and Guatemala, it's not pretty. No. So we're, we're the ones that are causing a lot of that. And, and the thing that's hardest about this country, David, that's just, I just cannot abide by, is we just don't have any curiosity about the rest of the world. The rest of the world is so curious about us, or used to be. They're not anymore because we've become so horrific. You know, but, but, the, but we have no, we don't, we just don't give a shit about how anybody does anything differently anywhere. Boy, that's a hard, that's a tough pill to swallow. Yes, but you are quite excited. You are quite excited with our royal family and castles, aren't you? Let's face it, you know. <laughs> how old is that is the first question an American tourist asks, and how much did it cost? Those are the two. <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, that's the other thing. Yeah, I mean, did we, I mean, this re latest thing that happened, you have to understand is I don't follow popular culture in the way that I really even under, I mean, I understand some old, uh, yeah, Prince Philip died, okay? And then there's some problems with one of the kids and the wife, okay? All right, I get that. But I barely know what a Kardashian is. I don't yes. know really what a Kardashian is. And in fact, I had this conversation uh, last night with my son and his girlfriend because they were very interested in the OJ trial, right? They're 23, and the OJ trial is what really launched a lot of this sort of reality TV. You know, uh, networks found out that for very little money, 
they could do this freak show that people tuned into and and uh, and still today you know if you turn on cnn you're not going to see news you know all the nighttime people like don lemon or anderson cooper you know i don't know what it is it's a very cheap way to have some sort of topic every night that really doesn't illuminate much yes this is this is true. This I know reality TV is awful. But look, just going back, did you yeah. just going back slightly? When you went to record your last couple of albums with Green on Red, this is the sort of early nineties. Was was it kind of the sense when you were in the studio that you you felt that this was this was going to be the the last album, so to speak? Well, first of all, you know it stopped. It stopped when me and Chuck went and did Here Come the Snakes in Memphis, the second Memphis record with Jim Dickinson. And because I thought I was doing a solo record. See, I showed up and then the company that gave us the money to do that went bankrupt. And the, we were signed to a publishing deal and they ran around and they, they had a record company uh, part of their publishing concern. They had a physical you know, side. And they said, well, we'll put it out, but you got to call it Green on Red. So it was the first time that I, in the music business, or really the first time in my life that I'd done something completely against who I thought I was. So it was over then. So Green on Red ended with Here Come the Snakes, which is a, in my opinion, is a very good record. I mean, when I look back at Green on Red, I think half the records are okay and half of them are not so great. And that was one of the better ones. And then we, me and Chuck continued with just sort of session players and session road guys. But it was over, right? Meaning it was, we kept going because we were on salary, right? Mm. And we, we had publishing advances and stuff like that. So we just kept going because we didn't know what else to do. I mean, what are you supposed to do? I mean, by the time we did the Glenn Johns record in LA, and as you probably know that name, Glenn Johns is a huge legacy producer yeah. from The Who and The Stones and all of that. Well, well, we had nothing. I had nothing. I had nothing to say. I had nothing to give. Um, extraordinarily expensive record done at Ocean Way Studios. Terrible record, just an awful record. But I didn't know what to do with my, I, I had no place to do but be in that, that long stay hotel. You know, I mean, I had nowhere to go. I had no home. I had no, my life was down to one guitar in one hand and a suitcase in the other, literally. So I, I, I just kept, I, you know, I didn't know what to do. What I should have done is just disappeared and regrouped. And hopefully, if I had something to say a couple of years later, come back and do something. Yes. But I didn't have the courage. You know, I didn't have the willpower to do that. I didn't. I was a coward. And so I, I do this record, and uh, and then we got lucky on the record after that. We did a record with Al Cooper in in Nashville. That was a fun kind of good record. But was it green on red? No, it was me and Chuck Prophet. You know. So it, 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 it's a it's a shameful thing that also had some sort of artistic merit to it, you know, because those records are OK. They're pretty good, some of them, like outside of the Glenn Johns record. So that, yes. I guess 
thing is those last three or four Grin on Red records, I don't know what they were. They were sort of the monster with two heads, you know, instead of four heads. Yes. And did you do a, you did a BBC Made of L session though, didn't you as well? We did a bunch of BBC sessions that somebody put out at some point. The BBC was always really kind to us, except for John Peel. He hated us. Bob Harris liked us. I saw John Peel once in the, um, I was at the BBC doing something. And um, he came down to the reception for pick up some Chinese takeout or something. I forget what it was. And Chuck says, look, it's John Peel. And, 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 I, and I walked up to him and I said, uh, I said, uh, I said, hey, John, I said, why don't you, why don't you play us? I said, I, I said, look, I'll tell you what, you play the next record, I'll go down on you. <laughs> <laughs> that didn't go over good. He just said, oh. said, no, no, thank you. <laughs> and of course, you know, I love John Peel, right? So it's uh, one of those things, you know, you don't, I think whispering Bob Harris was our benefactor more than John Peel. And Andy Kershaw. So then what, what did you do regroup for the 90s? How did you navigate that decade? Well, I didn't. You know, I came, I was living in, in uh, Madrid. And I was, uh, had a really bad dope habit. Was that, by the way, was that Madrid in America? No, Madrid in Spain. Okay, because there, there's, a, there's a Madrid which is near New Mexico, isn't there? Which we drove through once and stopped. There's a bunch of those. There might be one in Missouri too, I think, because they call it the Madrid fault line, right? Of that uh, huge uh, earthquake that happened in the late 19th century. Yeah, it was I think an it... happened with the Mississippi ran backwards. because <laughs> oh, I think that's sort of south of Albuquerque. Oh, so you went to Spain. Why did you go to Spain again? And I was married to this uh, gal from uh, Barcelona, and. Um, I was, I had a very uh, expensive and bad dope habit. And I moved, um, that's a Gila woodpecker. He's right, oh, he said, no, that's a, that's a thrasher. Go away, thrasher. Hey, he's right there right now. <laughs> They're loud. They're like aggressive birds too. Anyway, so he, I, I, I went, I came back to the United States. I didn't know what to do. I was scared I was gonna die, and I. Uh, hey, you're being. Hey, let me see. Let me find something. Hey, hey, go away. So I, I um. So I went back. I um. I cleaned up, and I um. And my wife joined me. Um. At some point, we were separated, and. We had a child, and I get all into this in the new book. My my new novel is all about me cleaning up in the '90s here, and uh, gets involved with. Uh... Hey, I'm gonna. Tell her, tell me. Hey, hey, you're a, you're a cheeky lad. Hey, hey. Okay. So. Oh. So anyway, I, I cleaned up and I, um, and I got a job, a regular office job. I was painting for a, on a paint contracting crew full of ex-junkies and stuff. And from that, I, I made it into an office. I call it my missing years. And yes. my wife, 
my my wife was in grad school and she she went from london party girl to intellectual and you know got her degree and now is a professor in new york and we had a son who's out here visiting me now and i just tried to you know i didn't know what a normal person was i hadn't been sort of a stable person since i was like 10 and here i was you know 30 32 years old and had no life skills nothing outside of rock and roll so i did that and then um um played a lot of golf which is a huge cliche right yeah alice cooper um, and um uh, I, I try to get somebody well like you you have to manage that. try getting anybody to read a crime novel that has recovery in it with golf it's like the most unpopular topics of all time you know but i do think that if we do digital marketing and we target you know golfers with substance abuse problems that also like crime fiction and indie rock there's got to be thirty thousand of those guys we yeah you got it fuck. absolutely <laughs> anyway that's what i did i wrote some screenplays with a friend out here who was a movie producer nothing got made but i got paid a couple times and and um i tried to learn how to write a little bit and then i moved to new york and um same thing got paid to write a, a biopic of nikola tesla and um you know i've always wanted to be a writer you know i i, I always felt like a fish out of water in music always but i i feel very comfortable in the literary world and um you know and I, I i have my causes you know like i believe that we have too much mfa fiction you know masters of fine arts where people talk about you know the blues of being in grad school <laughs> <laughs> i'm trying to i'm trying to bring back some sort of you know pulp sensibility you know the first book was just a false memoir it was sort of written like a pug rock thing and then the second book was a real novel about you know, life down in Oaxaca and being very in, in a severe depressive episode and surviving that. And, and the new one is just a breezy sort of Elmore Leonard thing, you know, uh, that takes place in Arizona in the 90s. And I'm hoping that little by little, I can crawl my way and uh, write a book every few years. And hopefully by the time I die, I'll have, you know, half a dozen books to go along with uh, all those sort of dubious records. Yes. So what, so when you earlier, you mentioned, you know, up to the age of 50, you know, you had a moment in when you were hit 50 where you suddenly had to clear up, clean up. Was that, you know, just emotional or spiritual or sort of drug related? Well, I, I as far as drug addiction, uh, I, I, I cleaned up as far as, you know, that sort of stuff uh back sort of mid 90s lasted for 10 years and then i decided to be a civilian again and you know so i started drinking and smoking weed again which is has not been a problem so all of those sort of horror stories that you hear about that is taught and i don't want to get into the whole politics and the 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 the, the not based on scientific truth of addiction and all of that but what happened at 50 is that my my I was in New York and my marriage imploded like kind of did in the early 90s, um, but not based on these issues. 
And I just sort of, you know, I mean, it's, I had what they used to call a nervous breakdown, right? Mm-hmm. Where I, you know, where I couldn't sleep and I couldn't eat. And, um, I, and I wound up in a psych ward. And, and I had a Russian shrink tell me, um, he said, he said, Mr. Stewart, he said, I understand what's going on with you. I think I do, he said. And he says, you know, I've seen psychotic and you're not quite there. <laughs> <laughs> but, he, but here's the medication that you might find useful. You might want to, you know, mess with the dosage. And so I, 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 I you know, I went on to this anti-psychotic when I was 50 and very low dosage. And this funny thing about life is that, you know, my marriage was over and I went down to Oaxaca and geez, you could get that medication down in Mexico over the counter. (laughs) So yeah, you know, that beats, that beats getting uh, codeine over the counter in Spain in 1990. Right. And so it just all sort of worked for me. And I started putting it together sort of day by day. And, and, um, and uh, the beauty of Mexico is Mexicans are really good at living in the moment. You know, they're kind of Buddhists that way. And they can be very, very satisfied with very little sort of material. I mean, Mexicans know how to be happy in the moment. They can do it. Mm. And at the same time, they're very fatalistic, right? At the same time, they know that, that what's coming is not going to be good. But they can really enjoy a day like today. Is such a like I'm, I'm really understanding how hot it's going to be in a few weeks. So right now it's 90 out, which is very pleasant in Tucson because there's no humidity. And I can just just real. I'm in this house that I, you know, I bought a house that that was a rundown, hadn't been lived in for years, a tiny little sort of thing, and. I had friends that helped me sort of turn it into something. And I can't believe it's happened. I can't believe that I've got this place that's like a writer's studio. It'd be a perfect place for a painter. Mm. It's like very high ceilings and I've got all this light that floods in, you know. Um, but I'm not a painter. But it, it, it's gratifying to know that if a painter did, <laughs> them, they would find it useful, right? And um, so I just feel sort of really... Um, you know, uh, grateful that, you know, I turned 60. That was a huge deal. I never thought I would make 60. And um, we have this, I don't know if this is happening in, in, in the UK, but in the United States, nobody wants to be old. And I, I don't understand it. And they want to, they'd never retire. I mean, I understand if you can't retire because economically you can't. That's mm. a separate, right? But there's people that just want to stay in power forever. And I'm not necessarily talking about Joe Biden because he's sort of the exception that proves the rule, okay? I mean, I have no problem with him where he's at right now. I mean, uh, um, I'm, I'm grateful he's in there. But there's so many other people that just, they, they do not, I remember when, when a 60-year-old, 70-year-old, they sat in the corner, they were glad to get a cup of tea and a bit of cake <laughs> and write checks for the grandchildren. Yes. You know, they knew they didn't, they didn't have to be the straw that stirred the drink anymore. So um, 
I'm, I, I hope to put another 10 years together. That would be wonderful. Uh, but I have no illusions that I'm going to be some sort of 80, 90 year old. You know, I've just, my body's been through too much. I'm already going through all, I've, I've, you know, I've got some health issues, whatever that I'm dealing with, but like everybody, but I'm happy to be old. I'm happy to be, and to cheerlead the kids. And um, if they want it, I, I, I have a bit of advice, you know, if they want it. But I'm not going to tell them what to do or who, how to act or how to feel or what's fair. Yes. It, you know, it's like woke culture, like this book I just wrote. You know, if some woke kid or wants to say, hey, you're, you're a 60-year-old Anglo from a privileged background, and you have a bunch of Mexican-American char Mexican characters in this book, and I don't think that's cool. I wouldn't argue with him or her, or they, I would just take my lumps. I mean, how, how many years has it been of the patriarchy? How many centuries? If it takes three or four centuries for the pendulum to swing back, I'm fine with that. You know, people bitching about it, people bitching about cancel culture and all of this. Hey, you know, you didn't bitch about it when, when you know, you, you gladly took all the benefits. When when it was the other direction, now it's uh, the wind has changed. You know, yes, yes. Point, right? Uh, so I'm I'm happy to be alive. Yes. And I'm happy like you gives a shit to fucking call me and listen to me fucking rant. <laughs> so because in the last decade you've written, but you also recorded sort of material as well, haven't you? So you've been this last decade has been quite active, hasn't it? With and and sort of playing with your old mates as well. You know, I, I mean, I'm so, I, I, like I said, I'm proud. I managed to do it in two different eras and um, I'm done with music. I'm not saying that melodramatically. It's just, I did a, I did a trilogy that I'm very proud of, right? I did this Marlowe Boiling thing and I've done it both in the, with the books and with the music. And um, I, I really believe that the LP is dead. Um, Famous last words because we thought the novel was dead in the early seventies, but um, I just think that the, it's singles now and it's I, it's just not my thing. And and I grew up with the album, right? I grew up with twenty minutes of music aside, and you either got up and turned it over, or you didn't. You didn't pick up the needle to to to, to not play that song you don't like, right? Mm. So I, it's just a different time and place, and and um and I don't um. The studio itself has changed, right? What is a recording studio? I mean, it doesn't really exist anymore. And and I come out of those days too. So I'm, I, I've had my fill. You know, I've done four solo records. That's quite enough. I did one in the 90s and three, as you said, from 210 to around 217, 18, I guess. And I, I've said my piece, right? Just give me a bit of cake. I'll sit in the corner and listen to what you do. But then, right. but then, then when you know one of your bandmates says, "Oh, by the way, you know," and after this lockdown, do you fancy just having a bit of a jam again? Do you sort of do you think, "Oh, actually, it's been a bit of a drag." I'll be quite keen to play again, you know, just as a as a bit of a jolly. I, I'm not saying that I don't want to play music anymore. Um, as far as with Green on Red, it wouldn't go down that way. The way it would go down is um, 
that somebody would be offering some serious money. <laughs> Straight up, you're right. You know, they would be like, hey, you know, um, everything's kind of come full circle again. And, you know, you, let's go out and make some money. Because you see, we really didn't make money back in the day, right? Mm-hmm. So we don't feel guilty about that part of it at all, you know. And 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 then it would be okay. Where are we going to get together? And then we would show up, and we would have a set list based on stuff, and we would just get right to it, right? And that would be a blast. It would be a lot of fun. And so maybe that'll happen, maybe not. As far as just playing locally or still touring as a solo artist internationally. You know, that depends. I need to get two new hips, right? I need both hips replaced and I can't tour right now because of that. You know, I'm, 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 I have a lot of, you know, I, I, I have a cane. It's not a walker. I'm not in a wheelchair, but there's no way I could tour until that happens. So, so that's at least a couple of years of the surgery and the coming back from it. And locally, you know, I have some players around here that, that, we enjoy playing with each other. And I did a Wednesday night thing in Tucson when I first moved here every Wednesday night at the Dusty Monk. And that was a lot of fun, but it ran its course. And so, yeah, I love to play. I, and and I, I will do that. But, yes. um, you know, I used to say that the best musicians never leave their porch. Because <laughs> <laughs> they don't have a neurotic need to perform. I mean, the thing, you know, Let's just be clear. Anybody that, that is in the entertainment business, from an actor to a musician, anybody that wants to put themselves on display in an exhibitionist type way, that's not coming from a good place. You know, yeah. even Bob Marley, that's not coming from a good place. That's coming from a hole inside. And that's, be- and that's beautiful. So you become a performer. I mean, think about somebody like Nina Simone, right? I mean, she, such a compelling artist, you know, but what was driving it all? What was driving out it all was not pretty. Mm-hmm. It was not life. It was not life affirming. I mean, it could be, but there was also a lot of sadness and anger there. Right. So, you know, I just don't feel the, 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 you know, I don't, I just don't feel like I need to get my yayas out, you know? And, and at the same time, I really, you know, writing used to be such a laborious process, and now I find it to be sort of um, much more fun, if I can use that word, if writing can ever be fun. I don't know if it's fun, but it's certainly not, you know, I don't feel like I'm being tortured, and I enjoy it. I, I get up really early, you know, I get a, it's like you know, another one of those cliche stories, you know, I get up at six. It's very easy for me to sit down at the hundred dollar shit book Chromebook I have and <laughs> knock out some stuff and uh, three or four hours go by. And by that time I'm ready to come outside and feed some birds, you know? Yes. So with your latest book, did you do a lot? Was it a case that you had to do a lot of rewriting and sort of going back over it? No, the second book was difficult. Uh, that one's called The Unfortunate Demise. So I've skipped around. So the first one was named after the first record. Uh, what was that one called? I can't remember now. Uh, 
something Marlo Billings. That's another senior moment. I don't even know the name of my first solo record. And then it was, this one is Marlo's Revenge, which is the second uh, record. Right. And so, so the first book was me, Punk Rock Days, Tucson, going to LA. The second book was 2015, 2016 in Oaxaca. And this book is me in the 90s, okay? And actually, it sort of wrote itself. I mean, I didn't, all those things that used to hang me up on the second book, I, I, I got, you know, you survive a novel, right? And, and what you're trying to do is you're trying to solve it. Mm-hmm. You're trying to, trying to figure out something that you want to figure out about what happened to yourself. And at the same time, you're trying to solve this thing. And so when you solve it, you realize that the muse will help you if you just let it, right? So this one, I, I, just, let it, I just let it rip, you know? Uh, and the second record was like that a lot. The Marlowe's Revenge record was very loose. So this one, it was not this big, heavy character coming out of a psychiatric episode, you know. This was just me. And then, I mean, sure, he's kicking dope and he's getting clean. But he's also in his 30s, so he has a little bit more resilience. And, um, yeah, I'm happy. I mean, I'm sort of on Tinder hooks right now because... I'm waiting for my readers and I'm waiting, waiting for uh, editors and stuff to chime in. But so far, I guess they trust me now. So nobody, and I don't really need anybody to hold my hand anymore. Mm. That happens in music too. You get to the point where you don't need somebody to hold your hand in the studio. You know how to do it. So at this point, it's just like, yeah, I know how to write a book. Do you, have you, have you got more sort of, protective over your books than you did your records do, do, does this feel much more personal do I feel much more what did you say protective of your you know the books you know or do you feel much more exposed with the books you know the writing process with the you know the novels rather than the, the music what I've noticed like I was just sort of at a dinner party right it was outside more space but I was there with like, you know, um, I'll mention a name. One of the people there was Stacy Richter, who wrote two really highly regarded collections of short stories. She's a very funny writer. And what I've noticed, and then I'm there with this other guy that's produced Hollywood films and whatever. And I'm there and what I notice is what I want to talk about is the nitty gritty emotional shit of some of these books, right? Because I'm a, you know, we're all narcissists. Anybody that is in the performing arts, you know, and even if now you become a writer, you know, you're a fucking narcissist. And um, but nobody's really interested. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody really gives a shit. So, what they give a shit if they read it is they they want to know whether. It, they want to have fun with it or they want it to challenge them or something, right? Like Graham Brink Green, who is one of my heroes, absolute heroes. He, he broke his books down into the serious ones like Power and the Glory and then what he called entertainments like Our Man in Havana, right? But the yeah. truth is, is what he considered sort of lightweight. That stuff has some of his best shit, right? 
So I'm kind of at that point. I'm kind of at the point where I wouldn't mind actually selling some books, right? And it doesn't scare me to write something that's sort of, that, that, that it's not a big heavy thing. Like this book is not a heavy, the last one was kind of heavy. Mm-hmm. Whereas this one is just sort of like um, absurdist a little more. And I like to say that they're all the songs, the books, every this interview, it's 65% true. Because <laughs> that's how we sort of go through life, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, there was there was a very interesting film, you know, on Robert Lloyd from The Nightingales. And, you know, he was telling his story and other people were telling the same story, but it was different. And they were going, well, this is all, everyone's got a false narrative here, haven't they, of this kind of past, you know, but at the end the of the fam- day... Famous Kurosawa, right? It's the famous samurai movie, right? Or Shonen or something. Russian on, however you pronounce it. Exactly right. Everybody everybody's blowing smoke up their ass but it's not we do it because we need to survive denialism is a to be i mean not denialism denialist that's but to be in denial about certain things about your own behavior and stuff that's how if not how would you live you know um i just had an old girlfriend come over that i lived with for eight years um she lives in LA and we lived together in this period of time that we were talking about so when I was 18 to 26. And it was really hard to, I mean, she didn't have any agenda. She's a wonderful person. And she brought me this poster of our first green on red gig opening for X in um, LA, this beautiful poster. And, um, but a couple of things came up that were hard to hear, right? And she didn't say them in a way to be mean or anything, but it was things that I had repressed, you know, forgotten. I mean, memory is a very elusive thing, no? Mm-hmm. You know, and so exactly right. Um, oh, and by the way, on this, these reissues, we're not, I mean, I guess they're going to do some sort of liner notes that I've objected to. But what I've done is I've kind of... Um, organized a, um, a false oral history so it's not people recorded on tape because i refuse to do the <laughs> transcription but it's people sending in their memories or certain events and then i i've been chopping it up and putting it into the form of an oral history right yeah and, I, and it's exactly what you're talking about. It's everybody has different um, memories of how something happened or whether it ever did. Um, and uh, so if you live long enough, you get to experience stuff like that. Yes, absolutely. So did you say these reissues are coming out or have they started coming out? No, they'll be the first one, which is covers roughly 1979 to about 84. Mm-hmm. That'll be out, uh, it won't be this year, but it'll definitely be in 2022, 22. So that'll be the first, and then we'll start sort of, you know, the next one will not be, it'll probably a year or two later. So it'll be sort of bam, 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 but all within about, no longer than five years yeah so i'm i'm excited about that because you know there's all this revisionism now right 
and you kind of got to jump in or somebody else will try to decide what happened. Yes. And I've noticed a lot of it is not true, what they're trying to sort of, a lot of people are like got a lot of axes to grind and, you know, I've just seen stuff that isn't the way it went down in my opinion. So I want to, I, we all want to jump into that and, yes. and to say, you know, okay, this is our take. And what, and what record label has, uh, has taken this on? Well, we're doing it mostly with help with uh, uh, Chris Metzler, who has uh, Decor. Uh, he puts out bands like Richmond Fontaine and uh, he's a booking agent too of like, you know, Chuck Prophet and stuff. And uh, he does, he's doing also American Music Club. Um, so uh, he's a kid, he's, he's been in London for a long time, but he's from, uh, he's from Oregon. Right. Or that's D-E-C-O-R. So we'll be doing it with them in conjunction with our own entity you know yet to be named have you Probably, um, have you found uh, if this will this include kind of demos and sort of other recordings that oh, never you bet you bet it's going to have all it's going to have stuff that i find absolutely non-interesting <laughs> <laughs> you got to be a completist nowadays i mean i heard about i heard about that there's a stooges reissue that has like 15 versions of I want to be your dog. It's like, why? <laughs> but, you know, fans want it. So, um, you know, we're, we're the, the trouble that we're running into is every band should have some sort of archivist, right? Yeah. Like the Rolling Stones, that's Bill Wyman, right? Wyman has it all, right? He has the vaults of photographs. I mean, he's, he just collected it all. But we, we really, I mean, I'll give you an example. The first EP, the master track, the master tape, two inch, 16 track. I sold that for a bag of weed back in the day. You know, think about that. Think about how irresponsible that is. Crazy. Right? <laughs> I, so I'm not proud of it. I'm just telling you the truth. This would have been around, I probably sold that tape around 1985 or something. You know, that's just, not, you know, so we don't, I mean, Chuck has a suitcase full of shit. Jack has one, Chris has some, but if you go into this new house of mine right here, I don't have anything. I don't have, um, I have a suitcase of like the last tours merch right what's left and i have a single copy of my books but that's it i don't have any old green on red records i don't have any old green on red things it's like what lou reed said years ago he said i, I don't want to listen to that shit i made it why would i listen to it <laughs> yes yes but um oh. did did you did you ever find out did you ever locate the tape? Did anybody come out of the woodwork and get actually, I've got the tape? Oh, of, of that EP? Yeah. Um, I don't think we found the, I don't think we found the two track master, but what we do have is on, we, we probably, somebody probably has the, te in fact, I know they do has the test pressing, right? Yeah. The original test pressing and we have a couple copies vinyl that have never been played 
right? And that that record sells for the, the first one, if it's a real one, because it's been bootlegged. It sells for, I don't know, last time I checked, like 200 pounds or something. So yeah, we're, we're and we're trying, you know, we're not, we're not skimping out. We're trying to, wherever possible, get original tapes. And um, if not, we go back to the closest we can get to the resource. And then, and then when we remaster, we don't remaster in a way to make it sound fresh and new for this era. Mm -hmm. We do it the way it would have been done back then. Because I can't stand that. I, I have a title account because uh, I was bitching about Spotify or something and an executive at Title saw it on social media and he gave me a VIP account. And one of the things I noticed as I, because I have no record collection or anything, I listen to music through a $30 anchor sound bar, you know? Mm -hmm. But one thing I noticed was so much of the stuff that's been remastered it's awful. It doesn't. It doesn't sound like it did when, and I don't. I don't expect it to sound like vinyl did through a good stereo. Mm -hmm. I just want it to sound like it did. Whether because you see my era and your era, because you're old enough to remember this. We we listen to music in all sorts of different ways. Everything from a jukebox to an AM radio in a car. That's just one shitty speaker. Yes, to a absolutely. Stereo system. So we're used to hearing things in different ways. But when I hear that sort of like really loud, cold, brittle, I go, that's not the way that sounded. Um, it happened to me recently listening to a Traffic, you know, who's one of my favorite bands, Traffic from back in the day, Steve Winwood and all of that. And I said, you know, that's not the way that sounded. This, I, could, I could hear too much separation, too. Right. You know, and, and, and sometimes having, being able to hear the drums that good, well, you know, shit wasn't, that's not the way it sounded. I mean, nobody really heard it. We only felt the kick drum back in the day. We didn't really hear it. Yeah. You know, so I, I'm, and I'm not a big sound file. I'm not. I'm not an audio file. I'm the opposite. <laughs> So I, I think we just had a discussion amongst ourselves and said, you know, let's try to get stuff sounding kind of like it did when we, when we, when we were listening to the final mix in the studio. Yeah. Right. That's what we want. Yeah. Nice. Nice. I, or have I answered all your questions? Yes, uh, just one, just one last one. I mean, if you could have said something, I always say, ask this. Just if you if you could ask, uh, said something to your sixteen or eighteen year old self starting out. Is there any sort of little bit of advice or words of wisdom that you would just say? Oh, by the way, just do this, kid, or don't do that. I don't know. I mean, my thing, yeah, try to wake up interested. You know, that's the thing. Oh, and the other thing, I, I guess I would have said this. I would have said, you know, there's many right roads, <laughs> but there's only one wrong road. And if you're on it, turn around, right? That's what I would have told that 16-year-old. 
Yes. And by the way, didn't we did did we I've you've interviewed me before, true? No. Really? No. I have the funniest feeling of deja vu, especially when you ask that question. I said, I said, this guy's asked me that before, but we haven't. It's mm. been a most conversation, and <laughs> if it, it really it has, and and if you um, if you're ever in my neck of my of of the woods, if you're ever in the southwest, because I'm going to kind of be here for a while, I, I would. I would feel hurt if you didn't reach out and we'll go have a, a beer somewhere or eat a burrow. We will definitely do that. We'll definitely, hopefully next year. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I might even hop in the car with you uh, and go see the Grand Canyon again. Okay? Let's do that. It's always nice. Uh, one. Take care. Well, Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Take care. See you later. Bye-bye. Don't be a stranger. See you bye. later. Okay. Bye. And that is a very long interview and that is also the end i'm sure i'm sure someone's listening to anyway that was me in conversation with dan stewart one time member of deep green on red talking about life love poetry as if you're listening still anyway this is david east of the c86 show if you want to contact me you can on spotify itunes no um facebook twitter and um Instagram, that's the one. Just do C86 Show. And also, all these have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. It's a true story. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.